0: Hey, this is David Gibson, I'm the executive editor of the Journal of Ecology, and I'm sitting here with Scott Collins at the ESA Centenary meeting in Baltimore, Maryland. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Scott's research and ecology in general. So welcome, Scott, to the podcast. Right. Thanks, David. So let's start off for you to tell us a little bit about your academic background.
1: Sure. Um, my background started as an undergraduate student at a small four-year college that had no re- research programs. And I gradually moved into ecological research through my master's program and my PhD at the University of Oklahoma, where David and I were office mates. That's true. Um, After uh, I got my PhD, I did a postdoc at Rutgers, um, went back to Oklahoma as a faculty member. Um, After that, I spent 10 years at the National Science Foundation uh, managing uh, research funding programs there before moving to the University of New Mexico in 2003.
0: Very good. So you move around more than I have. <laughs> yes. So uh, what's the research focus of your, of your lab right now? Uh,
1: we're interested in uh, a couple of related projects. One is just the ecological impacts of climate change on grasslands. Uh, we have projects in uh, New Mexico and arid grassland systems, uh, Kansa Prairie in Kansas, and we recently wrapped up a project comparing uh, mesic grasslands in North America, Kansas, and uh, South Africa, and primarily Kruger National Park. The other thing we're very interested in um, is the impacts of shrub encroachment, what some of the drivers of shrub encroachment are, and the consequences of shrub encroachment um, taking place worldwide. But we're, our system, again, is primarily in the arid grasslands and at conza Prairie.
0: What are some of those drivers?
1: Well, the drivers are complex. In, our, in the case of the um, creosote invasion of desert grasslands, there are uh, multiple factors that probably are involved in this. One is um, warming. Um, one of the key limitations of many desert species is their tolerance of cold. So, as winter, nighttime cold temperatures become warmer, right, the most extreme cold, it actually paves the way for creosote to move forward. Um, there have to be particular climate conditions that stimulate the germination of creosote seedlings and then there have to be conditions that reduce the competition between those seedlings and grasses such as grazing or drought. So there are a combination of factors that all have to come into play for shrub encroachment to take place. The consequences are interesting. We have a loss of plant biodiversity. Um, We lose higher erosion rates. There's more bare space. Um, There are higher nighttime temperatures in shrub encroached areas than in grassland but there is higher sh- uh, carbon sequestration in shrub land than in grassland. So there's trade-offs among ecosystem services.
0: So most, most systems, it's pretty complicated. So do you think some of those drivers, those interactions, vary in different grassland shrublands across the world?
1: Yeah, um, Certainly the drivers of shrub encroachment are quite variable. Where grazing can have a very strong effect in other parts of the southwestern U.S. or southern Great Plains. Uh, and perhaps, and there's fire-grazing interactions, certainly, in, in uh, savannah, grassland systems and ecotones that are probably more important than, say, warming in those conditions, Yeah. So.
0: Okay, very interesting. Now, you have published a number of papers in the Journal of Ecology. A few. Uh, a few, and uh, one of the more recent ones is one you did with uh, a whole group of authors called Changes in Plant Community Composition, Not Diversity, During a Decade of Nitrogen and Phosphorus Additions, Drive Above-Ground Productivity in the Tallgrass prey. Prairie. Can you tell us anything about
1: that study? Uh, sure. This, this, is, um, oh, this is a great uh, paper. It has a nice history. So one of the challenges we faced at Konza Prairie was that too often the plant ecologists would be brought into an existing study established by people interested, say, in soil or below-ground processes or net primary production, and then they would realize that they needed the plant community information to start to understand some of the patterns they were seeing at sort of the ecosystem scale. And so this was a study that I designed uh, with some help from my colleague uh, Melinda Smith and John Blair, in which we actually thought we'd get pretreatment data on the plant community and that we would also work in an upland grassland rather than lowlands where many of the experiments occur. And finally, we would work in a different fire frequency than a lot of what is common in grassland research. It's either annually burned or not burned. And so we're working in a different system in that regard. And we're also interested in the potential of co-limitation between nitrogen and phosphorus, and whether or not the phosphorus additions would uh, create conditions whereby the grasses would release their um, relationships on mycorrhizal fungi um, under high phosphorus availability. And we did, in fact, find that. We reduced root colonization rates under the phosphorus treatments. Um, The experiment um, ran for about uh, 10 or 11 years so far. And what we found was that there were dramatic and profound changes in the plant community after about a seven or eight year time lag in the experimental manipulation. So we early on got the traditional thing, you add fertilizer and the grasses grow. But after a while, the production started to decline, and that decline was a function of a loss of these formerly competitive C4 grasses and in significant increases in what would be considered to be not very competitive, relatively small, uh, perennial forms, so we see this, the nutrient additions creating the shift, and the shift was strongest under combined nitrogen plus phosphorus addition. So, it's I think important because only recently have people started to look at the patterns of net primary production and fertilization experiments and seen those declines and realized that the compositional changes that take place and the sort of the time lags in those compositional changes are important for the long-term responses that we're seeing.
0: That's interesting because uh, a little while ago we both sat and listened to Alan Knapp give a presentation on the, the water limitation experiments, which took a long time to show an effect. Now he didn't talk about the species there. Though.
1: He didn't, um, but he could have. <laughs> he and, could have. Yes. Um, so um, we published a paper in Functional Ecology, another BES journal, <laughs> uh, <laughs> on uh, community response and functional type response to that long-term water treatment, where the ma- the, the really cool thing about the watering was that the change that took place in the composition was within the same dominant functional group. So as many predict, you know, you would you would trigger some kind of response and you would have a decline in, say, C4 species and an increase in C3 forbs, for example. But in this case, we saw the response all within the C4, uh, the grass functional type. On the, um, the other experiment he's talking about, there was very little change in the plant community where we increased rainfall variability during the season, but again, there was about an eight-year time lag, and we're seeing an increase in forb species richness and composition, yeah. being triggered by higher precipitation variability in that long-term experiment.
0: Um, interesting. It'd be interesting to see if there's any phylogenetic signal in any of those experiments too.
1: Yeah, there may be. Um, there's a lot of hidden um, responses going on within the dominant species. There's been some interesting work at Conza by one of Mendy Smith's grad students, Megan Avolio, yes. who was the lead author. Showing that there are changes in genotype diversity in the dominant grasses within these experiments. So, as a community ecologist, I see big blue stem, but as sort of a, a genetically oriented ecologist, she sees significant changes that could be related to differences in precipitation and water availability. Yeah,
0: these are really interesting ways of bringing different sort of subdisciplines
1: together. I think.
0: Yeah. Okay, to change topic a little bit, uh, you're a former ESA president. What does the centennial mean? for the essay.
1: Well, it's great. I mean, just like the BES centennial, which I enjoyed very much uh, two years ago. It's a great time for celebration. And to some extent, as we discussed what to do, and perhaps BES did the same thing, you want to reflect back to some extent and sort of think about the past, but more you want to turn it into the future and where where are we going with ecology and, and what aspects of, of ecology are we missing and how can we bring that back into some of the uh, things that we're doing as a society.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's been an exciting uh, week yeah here, definitely, Yeah, definitely. And so do you think some of these, these looking back and looking forward exercises help you think about where the discipline is moving forward then?
1: Well, I, I think so in, in maybe broad brush ways. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot more integration, I think, between uh, systems now within ecological uh, studies, right? So before plant ecologists did plants and Animal people did animals, and sometimes we combined when animals grazed on plants. But now we're seeing a much more interaction between above-ground, below-ground systems, microbial plant systems, positive impacts on plants, positive in facilitation aspects. I think we're broadening the conceptual basis for ecology quite a bit right now, and I I find that particularly exciting. Absolutely. One of the other very cool things that I think is important for the way the discipline is moving is the emergence now of these... Uh, sort of cross-site volunteer networks of experiments where each experiment is made to be relatively inexpensive at a given site and the power of it is the multiple sites that occur across the globe. So experiments like the nutrient network and the emerging uh, drought net Mm -hmm. where uh, we're finding ways to get information in a coordinated way that allows us, I think, to have greater generality when we start to understand some of the future drivers, like increased probabilities of drought. And some of that involves citizen science as well. Citizen science, for sure, and all kinds, and so these aren't stuck within academic institutions. We're getting all kinds of participation in a lot of these networks, uh, and it's bringing people together who have different backgrounds and uh, different responsibilities, sort of in professional sense.
0: Another um, thing about the ESA recently is the, the, the move into a new publisher, Wiley. So that's yes. the hot topic around here this week. So what sort of changes do you see that this will bring about?
1: I mean, for the most part, we all agree, those of us that were involved in this decision agree, that this is going to be a vast improvement for authors and readers. Um, the, I mean, what Wiley brings to publishing relative to where the ESA is right now is is remarkable to us. So we're very excited about the agreement that we have with them and how they're going to take publishing and bring ESA into the future. So that's that's very important. There is a downside um, in that it affects a number of staff for the ESA who have worked in the publications office for a very long time. They've been very dedicated people. And so, you know, it's it's difficult to have to see people lose their jobs because of this transition. But for the, I mean, overall benefit of the society and for science, I think the move to Wiley is a very good one for us.
0: Yeah, and I know from the BS perspective, we've been thinking and talking with some of you at ESA about. Um, perhaps some ways in which the, the two societies can now work together more than in the past, right. using Wiley's platform.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, this is very exciting. So some were concerned that, you know, is it good to, for one publisher to publish, you know, our, what was described as a competing journals with the BES? And we pointed out that there isn't a competition here. There's a lot of good manuscripts. There's way more manuscripts to go around than there are. There's journal space, you know, between us. BES, AGU, etc. So we feel that this is really a partnership that's broadened opportunities. So, for example, there's the capability of creating these you know, online special issues of published papers, but we can do that across journals now, too, right? So exactly. we don't have to do it just within ecology, but we could bring in publications relevant on the topic from the BES journals, the ESA journals, AGU, whatever uh, societies have relevant things. So I think it's going to expand our outreach. It's going to expand the opportunities uh, for ESA journals to be more widely distributed yeah. and build partnerships with BES in particular. Absolutely.
0: Well, the last thing is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we're both grad students together. We're both advised by Paul Rissa, former ESA president. He passed away in July of 2014. Um, how do you feel he's missed, and what's his ecological legacy?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. It's a it's an emotional question because he was such an important person. Uh, to us, us, um, he was a remarkable man, Um, he was brilliant and articulate and kind, he had an incredible sense of humor, but what most people talk about with Risser was his ability to synthesize information on the fly, and there aren't many people that can do it as well as he did and in the same time not take the credit for it. So he would synthesize something that we were all not quite right about, and he would pull it together, get it right, and say, what I'm hearing from the group is this. And so he he shared the credit, and uh, he was an amazing human being for that. He had a great legacy as an ecologist, and even as he moved up in administration and became president of Miami University and Oregon State University, he was still writing papers Yes. He had paper in bioscience when he was president at Miami University. So he was a, a scholar all his life and a very generous human being. And I, I think a lot of people miss him. Yeah, there aren't many people around like him.
0: Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add at this point?
1: Uh, no, it's, just, it's a great time and looking forward to far more interactions between ESA and BES. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks.